0: Good morning. I have uh, grown to love and appreciate your preacher, and as uh, Ray mentioned, uh, my wife really likes Sarah, and they have a good relationship, and you're really blessed to have uh, Ray and Sarah here as your preacher. I respect so much the ministry of Graceland over the years, but thank you, Ray, for inviting me. It's good to be invited, good to be invited back. And there's something about coming across the river. There's a different atmosphere in Indiana than there is in Kentucky. People always ride me about being from Kentucky because Kentucky has a reputation of being a backward state. And there's a certain unhealthy pride in Indiana. I'm not sure where you get that, but somebody from Indiana emailed a while back and said, you know, I knew that Kentucky was a backward state, but I didn't know how backward until I went to the zoo in Kentucky. He said, you go to other zoos, and they've got the name of the animal in English, and then in parentheses, they've got the name of the animal in Latin. He if you go to the zoo in Kentucky, they got the name of the animal in English, and in parentheses, they've got a recipe. <clears throat> That's not true, but uh... being a Christian father is a very pressure-packed position today. In Ephesians, the sixth chapter, verse four, the Apostle Paul wrote, you fathers, bring your children up in the instruction and training of the Lord, and don't exasperate your children. It's a very heavy responsibility to be assigned the task of transferring your faith to the next generation. But it is doubly difficult today because most fathers today did not have a positive role model growing up, and they are plowing some new territory. And our culture adds to our stress. Dads didn't used to have to cope with kids' temptations on the cell phone and the social media and gender identity issues and rap music and secular education communicating just the opposite of what they're trying to teach at home. And Christian dads sincerely want to teach their children to know the Lord Jesus Christ but we feel very inadequate and sometimes overwhelmed, and there is a sense sometimes that the church adds to that stress. We come to church on Father's Day hoping to be instructed and appreciated, and so many times the preacher attacks fathers on Father's Day. I don't know where we got this tradition, but you come to church on Mother's Day, and the preacher praises Mother for all of her virtues. Then you come to church on Father's Day, and the preacher beats Dad up for all of his vices. One little boy on the way home from church on Father's Day said, Mom, that must have been a great sermon today. Dad's head was hanging way down low between his knees by the time the preacher was finished. Even the church adds to the stress. But Solomon said years ago, there's really nothing new under the sun. So there is a father in the Old Testament who encountered a lot of the same pressures we face today. His name is Jacob. Now, I understand from Ray that you've been in a series on the life of Joseph, so I thought it would be appropriate today to talk about Joseph's father, Jacob. Jacob encountered a lot of challenges as a father, and yet in the end, he's a real blessing to his children and his life was fulfilling. And I think we can learn a lot today about enriching our family spiritually in spite of stress from the life of Jacob. And I hope along the way, fathers will be encouraged and blessed. Let's think about the pressures Jacob faced as a father. For example, he faced the pressure of an imperfect past. Jacob had a checkered past that he probably just as soon his kids never find out about. In his younger years, he had a reputation of being a con man and a cheater. You remember that case occasion in the Old Testament? When Jacob's older twin brother, Esau, came home from a hunt, famished, well, Jacob was conveniently cooking some beef stew in the backyard. And when his brother smelled that aroma, he was almost starving, and he begged Jacob for a bowl of soup. And Jacob, ever the opportunist, said, I'll give you a bowl of soup if you'll sell me your birthright. Now, in the Old Testament, the birthright was the older son would get a double portion of the family inheritance. So it was a a big deal. But Esau, who is kind of flippant, said, what good is a birthright if you die of starvation? And he agreed. And so Jacob negotiated the birthright from his brother for a bowl of soup. Jacob could have authored a book and called it The Art of the Deal. And we'll just move on from there. Uh, Remember on another occasion when Jacob's older father, Isaac, was dying and he had told Esau to go out and bring home some venison and he would give him the blessing. Now the blessing evidently was a spiritual honor that it would assure that his children would be walking with God and would be enriched. But while Esau was out hunting, Jacob impersonated his brother and deceived his blind father into thinking he was the firstborn, and his father passed on the blessing to Jacob instead. And when Esau came home and learned what had happened, he was furious, and he vowed that he was going to kill his brother as soon as his father died. So Jacob fled for his life. Now, I'm sure that Jacob didn't want his children to know about the things that he had done wrong. It makes it hard to be a good dad if your kids can point to your mistakes and say, hey, dad, we're just emulating you. A creative fifth grade boy said, dad, here's my report card. And here's one of yours that I found in grandma's attic. (laughs) The father said, I'm going to give you the same thing my dad gave me for that report card. Most of you know some things about your father that were not perfect. Don't use that as an excuse to follow his example. Learn from him. I had a wonderful Christian father, but early on, just before I was born, my dad smoked. And it would be wrong for me to say, well, my dad smoked, I'm going to smoke. My dad grew up in an environment not nearly as advantageous as mine. His Mother died when he was three, and he was a 17th of 18 kids, and his father was an alcoholic in a very unchristian home. So, he had some vices that when he became a Christian, he, he gave up, and his situation was different than mine. My dad is a hero to me because he broke the generational sin. Maybe your dad made some mistakes. Maybe he's a poor manager of money, or he didn't communicate love the way he should have, or maybe didn't go to church as often as he should have, or he used some wrong language. Give him some slack. No one is perfect. Focus on his positive traits. Or even if your dad had serious flaws and he was abusive, or was an alcoholic, or maybe wound up in prison, learn from his mistakes and break the generational sin for your children's sake. You seek to forgive, and don't let a root of bitterness grow up and defile you. You show the love of Christ even to your dad by overcoming evil with good. Both Joseph and Judah were sons of Jacob. Joseph was one of the most godly men in all the Old Testament, but Judah in many ways was a scoundrel. They came from the same father. Ezekiel, the 18th chapter, verse 20 says, the soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. Even though the Bible says the sins of the fathers are visited on the third and fourth generation, they impact us, but we're not going to be held accountable for the sins of our parents or our grandparents. So quit blaming your dad for what ails you. Chances are he did a lot of things right, except your responsibility, and make the most of what opportunity God gives to you. Here's another stress point Jacob had that many can relate to. He had the pressure of a blended family. Jacob's mistakes weren't just in his younger years. He fled from his brother and landed in a place called Haran, where he had some relatives of the past. But in that place, he fell in love with a beautiful woman named Rachel. But his father-in-law deceived him into marrying not just Rachel, but marrying her older sister Leah about the same time. And the Bible says Leah was not as gorgeous. She had weak eyes. And that's all I'm going to say about that too. But that made Jacob a bigamist from the beginning. And not surprisingly, there was a lot of tension in the family. These two wives got into competition to see who could have the most children. And they resorted to a practice that was pretty common in that culture. They encouraged their husband to have children by their servant girls. And Jacob, ever the opportunist, when they insisted that he have a child by their servant girl, he said, well, if you insist. And he did. And he wound up having 12 sons and some daughters by these four different wives. You talk about stress. Who gets to use the shower when the water's still hot? Whose turn is to get up with a baby in the middle of the night when the baby's crying? Whose ball game do you go to when two boys are playing at the same time? Who has control of the remote? (laughs) You know, divorce and remarriage and the breakdown of the family creates a lot of pressure for dads today. There's a fairly new television sitcom called The Modern Family. It is an American television mockumentary which follows the lives of Jay Pritchett and his family, all of whom live in suburban Los Angeles. Pritchett's family includes his second wife, their son, his stepson, as well as two adult children and their spouses and children. Now listen to this uh, promotional description of this television program that's become popular today, The Modern Family. Parents Phil and Claire yearn for an honest, open relationship with their three kids, but a daughter who's trying to grow up too fast, another who's too smart for her own good, a rambunctious young son make it challenging. Claire's dad Jay and his Latina wife Gloria are raising two sons together, but people sometimes believe Jay to be be Gloria's father. Jay's gay son, Mitchell, and his partner, Cameron, have adopted a little Asian girl uh, completing one big, straight, gay, multicultural, traditional, happy family. That's sad. But sadly, that's probably more typical today than Ward and June Cleaver. And we've fallen a long way from father knows best to Homer Simpson. But that puts a whole lot of stress on dads. And if you're a child in a family like that, or if you're a wife in a complex situation like that, you do your best to bring the healing power of Jesus Christ into that disorder. And I guarantee you, your dad will love you for it. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called children of God. You do your best to be a peacemaker in that home Because only Jesus can heal broken lives and bind up the brokenhearted. Jacob also faced the pressure of imperfect children. Jacob wasn't the only one that was imperfect. These children of his weren't exactly uh, citizens of of decorum. And that made uh, Jacob's life tense. Those ten older brothers were so jealous of the favoritism that Jacob had shown to Joseph that when they had the opportunity, they beat him up put him in a cistern. They were going to let him die. But along came some Ishmaelite slave traders and they sold him as they made their way to Egypt. These brothers were ruthless and they were violent. Then they went home and told their dad that evidently Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. And their dad, Jacob, grieved for 20 years and they never told him the truth for a long period. Proverbs the 17th chapter verse 25 says, A foolish son brings grief to his father. I like the way it's paraphrased in the message. A surly, stupid child is a sheer pain to his father. Now, probably a lot of us here have added to the pressure of our dads growing up because of our wrongful behavior. When I was in the eighth grade, I'd grown up in a wonderful godly home, going to church every Sunday, no profanity, but I fouled out of a basketball game and we lost. And in frustration in the locker room, I did something that I had never done. I threw my tennis shoe against the locker, and I cursed. And one of my teammates heard and said, hey guys, did you hear that? Russell swore. I didn't even know that they were aware that I didn't swear. I was embarrassed, but what was more embarrassing, I turned and my dad had just walked into the locker room and heard me. And the look of disappointment on his face, I didn't want to see again. I added to the stress and the disappointment of my father. Maybe you disappointed your dad. You wrecked the car, or there was a DUI, or you failed a drug test, or there was an unwanted pregnancy. And you've added to the pressure of your dad. And if he's still living, maybe you need to go and apologize. At the very least, you need to be thankful that you had a father probably stood by you when maybe nobody else did. Jacob also experienced the pressure of inadequate finances. Jacob grew to be a very wealthy man. God blessed him with flocks and herds and much land. But a famine came to the land that was prolonged, and Jacob was in danger of losing everything. The famine lasted for seven years, and eventually he sent his older sons to Egypt where it was rumored that they had plenty of grain for sale. And the plan was, obviously, to feed the family. They certainly couldn't bring back enough grain to feed all of their livestock, and they were probably losing them. Jacob evidently spent some sleepless nights trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Fathers face tremendous financial pressure today, and we feel it heavy on our shoulders. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has estimated how much it costs to raise a child from birth through high school graduation, and the average father today spends almost $225,000 for one child. That doesn't include college. He could buy a yacht. No wonder that somebody said a father is a guy who has pictures in his wallet where his money used to be. Now, you place kids, you place additional pressure on your dad when you're always nagging for nicer clothes, more expensive shoes, more elaborate toys, better car, because he wants to provide the best. He wants you to be proud of him, he wants you to be able to be equal with your peers. But both children and dads need to remember, it is not the amount of money that you spend that matters. Often, it's a little everyday exchanges that mean a whole lot more in relationships than elaborate expensive clothing or vacations. When my grandson was 14, he got real interested in fishing. Now, I'm no fisherman. I don't care much for fishing. I kept saying, I need to do some fishing so I can bond with my grandson. Well, a guy from our church said, you know, I'm taking a bunch of guys on a fishing trip to Canada. Why don't you take Charlie, your grandson, with you, and you'll have a rich experience. Even you will catch fish in Canada. So I said, that's a good idea. And if I'm going to take Charlie, I ought to take his son. So the three of us, my son, my grandson, and I went to Canada. And I paid for three plane trip tickets A round trip to Minneapolis, three units on a charter bus to Canada, and then three tickets on a float plane to take us into the island, two uh, rooms in the lodge, uh, Indian guides, shore dinner, bait, everything. I spent several thousand dollars, not that it bothered me, but uh, (laughs) we had a good time. Even I caught fish. But on the way home, we were coming back. I said to my grandson, Charlie, what is your favorite memory? He said, "Pop, the favorite best thing that happened was the day that it rained and we couldn't fish, and we stayed in the lodge, and the guys taught me how to play Texas Hold'em." <laughs> I could have done that in the basement of my house. You know what really matters in the long run is not elaborate vacations and expensive clothing; meaningful relationships are the result of everyday, ordinary events like riding to school, sitting in church, watching a game together on TV, cookout on Memorial Day, uh, feeding the ducks down by the lake, or maybe fishing at a pond five miles from your home. So don't add pressure to your family thinking you have gotta have more things. Jesus said beware of greed, because a man's life, a family's life, does not exist in the abundance of things that you possess. There's one other stress point for Jacob And that was the pressure of raising his kids in a spiritually hostile environment. He ran away from his brother, came to Haran where he had some relatives, but he didn't have people there who shared his faith and his ethical values. And so he had the stressful assignment of raising his kids to know the one true God in the midst of an immoral and idolatrous culture. And that is not an easy task, but Jacob managed to transfer his faith to his kids, regardless of where they lived. Remember, Joseph was sold as a slave into Egypt at 17 years of age. Ten years later, he's in charge of Potiphar's household, and Potiphar's wife grabs him by the arm and invites him to go to bed with her. And Joseph responded by saying, I can't do this thing in sin against my God. We're to learn about that God. We're to learn about, or not to commit adultery didn't learn it from Egyptian culture, evidently his father had passed along those values to his son. And one of the toughest assignments for today's dads is to pass along their faith when the culture today is becoming so predominantly hostile toward it. Parents, I just heard this past week about a new app that kids can have on their phone that you need to be aware of. It's called a Vault app. And it looks like an ordinary app that the kids can have on the phone, maybe CNN News or Disney or something. But when you open it up, only the kids know the code and they punch in a code and it gets access access to pornography and sexting. And the parents look at the child's phone and that seems totally innocent. Romans 1:30 speaks of depraved god-haters who invent ways of doing evil and they disobey their their parents. Listen, Satan is crafty. He is using every evil device he can to kill, steal and destroy your kids. And if you're just raising your children in the same way that your parents raised you and assuming that they will naturally follow Jesus Christ because they have a lot of reinforcement other places, you're making a huge mistake. We've got to be more intentional, more focused, maybe even more radical than our forefathers, and that puts additional pressure on dad. And let me say to children, if your dad is trying to raise you with moral values that are counter to this culture. You appreciate him. You make life easy for him. Proverbs 13:1 says, "'A wise son heeds his father's instructions, "'but a mocker does not respond to rebukes.'" If your dad says, no texting at the table, don't bring the phone, stick it on the table, try to text. If your dad says, uh, go do your homework, you don't go into your room and play video games, If your dad says uh, you can't wear that outfit to school, you don't put it underneath outer clothing and then change in the locker room. You have a compliant spirit. You avoid the muttering and grumbling and griping that's so typical of many kids. And practice first time obedience. As soon as your dad asks you to do it, you do it. You don't demand that he beg you or count down to, to 10. Ephesians 6, 1 to 3 says, "Children." obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment of the promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now notice that the Bible says, if you obey your parents, it'll be more peaceful in the home and it will go well with you. Let's say your dad says says to you, I'm going to be gone for a couple hours. I want you while I'm gone to clean up that room. It is a pigsty. And you forget all about it, then until you hear him drive up, he says, oh, no, I remember. And you rush into your room, and you throw a few things in the closet, a few things under the bed, and then you pull the blanket over the bed real quickly, and he walks in and just shakes his head. About two hours later, you say, hey, Dad, a bunch of kids are going to go uh, to the mall and go to the movies. I'd like to go along. Can I go? I need about $25. And he said, no, you're not going to get $25. You think money grows on trees? I can't even trust you to clean up your room when I ask you to go. No, you're not going. And you go in the room, slam the door, and gripe about your parents being so strict and so hostile. And it's not going well with you. But think how much better it would go if as soon as your dad says, I want you to clean up your room while I'm gone, and you go in the room, and you make a thorough cleaning. You take an hour. You make the bed. You put your clothes in the drawers. You even take down that poster that you know your dad doesn't like, and you make that room really special. And then you go out in the garage and sweep the garage, and he comes back, and you're cleaning out the garage. He thinks he's got the greatest kid in the world. And then uh, two hours later, you say, hey, dad, a bunch of kids going to the mall and going to the movies. I need about, can I go? I need about $25. Sure, you can go. Stay out as late as you want to. Here's $50. You're such a good kid. (laughs) I take it by your reaction. You think that's a little exaggerated. Maybe so. But I guarantee you, if you're a compliant, obedient child, God honors that and it will go much better for you. Proverbs 23, 24 says, the father of a righteous child has great joy. A man who fathers a wise son rejoices in him. But in spite of all these pressures, Jacob managed to pass along a blessing to his children and his grandchildren. After he grieved the death of Joseph for about 20 years, his sons finally spilled the beans, told him the truth. We found Joseph is still alive. He's a prime minister of Egypt. Jacob forgave the older sons in his excitement that Joseph was still alive. And he went to Egypt and was reunited with Joseph. He met Pharaoh. And then in Genesis 48, he meets Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he passes along a blessing to them before he died. Listen to what Genesis 48, beginning with verse eight says. When Israel, another word for Jacob, the word the name Jacob was his first the uh, given name, and it meant grabber or schemer. The name Israel means... Uh, a man who struggled with God and persevered. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? They're the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so that I may bless them. Now or Israel's eyes were failing because of his old age, and he could hardly see So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his fathers kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. Joseph's the prime minister of Egypt, but he's still honoring his father in his old age. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand, and Nassau on his left toward Israel's right hand and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Now Joseph tries to uncross his dad's hands, saying the primary blessing should go to the older. And Jacob says, well, the older's gonna be blessed, but the younger's gonna be blessed more. And then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walk faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. And may they be called by my name and the names of my father Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. And then the next chapter says that though his boys were, his sons were older, one by one he pronounces a blessing on them And these 12 sons of Jacob become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of them, Judah, even though he's so imperfect, becomes the forefather of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus. Gary Smalley has written a book that's one of my wife's favorites called The Blessing. And he encourages modern fathers to pass along a spiritual blessing to their children. And he gives several practical suggestions about how that can be done. One is a meaningful touch. Jacob embraced and kissed and laid his hands on these boys. And we can pass along love and a blessing by hugging, an arm about the shoulder, a pat on the back, kissing. Another way that we pass along a blessing is by verbal affirmation. Jacob praised his sons and his grandsons. And we can communicate uh, that praise, that verbal affirmation by saying, I'm really proud of you. I believe in you. You did that really well. Thank you. I love you. So only says another way to bless is by attaching high value. We let them know that they're the most important people in our lives. And we look them in the eye and we listen to them. We sacrifice money and time for them. We we pray for them and we spend time with them. And... Another way we pass along a blessing is by picturing a special future for them. If you read the 49th chapter of of Genesis... Jacob places his hands on each of his sons individually. And he, though he's honest, he gives a blessing, a, a spiritual future for their sons, for his sons. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Dan, you'll provide justice for the people. Asher, your food will be rich. And we can bless our children by attaching high value to their future. And we can say to them, you know, you're so good with people. I bet you'd make a good doctor someday. You love the Lord. You love the church. You know the Bible. I bet you can make a good preacher someday. You want to be a policeman? Boy, you've got a lot of courage. That'll be really good. Uh, you're really good with animals. Maybe you would be a good veterinarian someday. And they'll act like it means nothing, but they'll remember that many times the rest of their lives. And wives, many times we have a hard time doing that because it goes against our macho image. So you can help out behind the scenes by saying to the kids, you should have heard your dad last night. You know what he said about you? He said, she's really smart, isn't she? Or when you got that award, boy, I thought your dad was gonna, he was gonna clap his hands off. He is so proud of you. And kids, if your dad tries to be a blessing to you, don't make it more difficult by saying, hey, dad, you're getting a little touchy-feely here, aren't you? No, you, you, you come next to him. You sit in his lap. You put your arm around him. It makes it easier for him. When my sons were little, we used to, Every night, read the Bible, have prayer with them, then kiss them goodnight, and my wife would take them upstairs and tuck them in. And one night, when my sons were eight and twelve, my son Phil, the eight-year-old, got in bed and said, Mom, I can't remember whether Dad kissed me goodnight tonight or not. So Judy came downstairs and said, Phil can't remember whether you kissed him goodnight. Well, I'm in the middle of a ball game, but that's okay. I tiptoed up the steps, and I bolted through his door like I was a monster, and I began to scream, and I dove in his bed, and I wrestled with him, and I hugged him and kissed him, and we carried on for several minutes. Then I laid in the darkness in bed with him, and we talked. It was really a good experience. The next night he got in bed and said, Mom, I can't remember whether Dad kissed me goodnight tonight or not. And so she came down and told me and I bolted through his door like I was a monster and wrestled and carried on. And every night after that, after we'd have prayer, he'd run away so I couldn't get a hold of him to kiss me. He'd get in bed and say, Dad, you gotta come kiss me good night." It was a great tradition. I would do it every night. And I knew it was gonna end someday when he's 34 years old and got a wife and two kids and I'm knocking on the door. <laughs> but one night I'm in, in the room with him carrying on and I finally say goodnight, walk out, close the door and I walk by his older brother, Rusty, is 12 years old, walk by his room, and I say, good night, Russ. He said, good night, Dad. And I thought, you know, every night now he's hearing me carry on with his younger brother. And then I walk by and I just say, good night, good night. But he knows he's too old for that stuff. He doesn't expect that. Well, maybe not. So I bolted through his door, dove in his bed, started wrestling with him, nearly got whipped, as I remember. Uh, and finally I laid in the darkness with the older son and I said some things that are hard to say. I said, Rusty, I, I want you to know again how much I love you and how special you are to me. I know you're discouraged, you're not a quicker athlete, but in the end that's not going to matter. What's going to matter is your relationship with the Lord and you're going to do some great things for the Lord someday. I said, okay, Dad, no big deal. But I felt better because I verbalized it. Next morning was Saturday morning. I walked by his room as he was getting up and said, Hey, Dad, could you come in here a second? He kind of pawed the ground. He's looking for something to say. He said, "I I just want to tell you, Dad, thanks for coming in last night. It meant a lot to me. They may brush it off. Like it doesn't mean much. But they'll remember it the rest of their life because you're passing along a spiritual blessing Is't that what our Heavenly Father has done for us? Through Jesus Christ? Physical touch. Jesus reached out and touched the repulsive leper. He put clay in the eyes of a man who was blind. He put his fingers in the ears of a man who couldn't hear. He hugged little children. He washed the dirty, callous feet of his disciples. Verbal affirmation. Nathaniel, you're a man in whom there is no pretense. Simon, you're going to be a rock. As a father has loved me, so I love you. Portraying a special future. Though I'm going to leave you, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and I'll come again to receive you unto myself, The where I am, there you will be also. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Placing high value, greater love is no man than this, than to lay down his life for a friend. Your heavenly Father knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. Are you not much more valuable than they? Therefore don't worry. Since your heavenly Father loves you with that kind of unashamed love, greater love is no man than this, than to lay down his life for a friend. Shouldn't you be a compliant child, first-time obedience, joyful spirit? 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are.